Let's get to Nehemiah 6 today. We're gonna, our message comes from there. The word of God reads, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat, Gesh, and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sambalot sent his aid with me, or to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to come their king, and even have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you said is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. And he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that, I would not com- so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, my God because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the 50, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. Also in the days of the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies to Tobiah kept coming to them, for many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I had said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, for the ways you've been speaking to us through Nehemiah. Lord, we pray that you continue to solidify the messages that you share with us. Father, may you share your heart with us as we go through your word. And Lord, we pray, give us the heart and the life to respond and to be who you are in our world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, If you ever spend extended time with me, years, what you'll soon learn about me is that I am the ultimate starter. You know, I start things really, really well, meaning I'm a great starter and I love starting things, but I'm a terrible, terrible finisher. You know, I rarely, rarely finish projects. I pick up books and I, I read the first three chapters, I read the first five chapters, but I never finish them. All my books, if you ever come over to my house, I've never finished them. Right? I've finished like 50% of them and 70% of them, but I probably never read the last chapter of a lot of those. You know, I don't know how many times every single week I said, okay, you know, Eddie, just 
just do it today, okay? Like today you're going to sit down and you're not going to get up from your chair until you finish the Sunday sermon, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden I'll sit down, I'll start doing them, ding, ding, and then someone will send me this like ridiculous video, right? Uh, and I'll get this notification and I'll do it. And then, well, guess what? Two hours later, I'm still watching absolutely useless but entertaining videos and I've done nothing. And this is who I am, right? Um, anyway, uh, I... I'm the ultimate starter, but I get distracted so easily. Maybe some of you guys can relate. But I think in today's world, that happens all the time, especially with things like YouTube, especially with things like, you know, social media. You know, you just start it, and all of a sudden, an hour later, you're still on it. You know, it happens. Um, it's amazing how easily distracted you can get. But the thing is this. If you get easily distracted, or if you get distracted for one day and you don't get to do your work for one day, it's not that bad. You can, There's always tomorrow. You can do it tomorrow. But um, the sadder reality, I think, for many in our generation, and I'm going to include all of us from 18 to 50, right, in our generation, is that some of us don't get distracted just for one day. We get distracted for weeks. Months. Some people even get distracted for years, you know, and the calling that God had placed upon their lives, or if I can say it differently, or the life direction and the purpose that God has, you know, or they committed themselves to for God and really wanted for themselves, all of a sudden, because of the distractions, it gets compromised. And all of a sudden, it gets lost in the midst of being distracted for days, weeks, months and years. You know, what I love about Nehemiah chapter 6 is that the story is very, very simple. It's a story of this man, Nehemiah, who gets bombarded with distractions. He gets bombarded with attacks. He gets bombarded with opportunities. Yet he shows the courage and the tenacity to stay on his mission, the mission that God has given him to complete. No matter how tempting, no matter how quote-unquote necessary all those other things might be within his life, he has the courage to say no so that he could stay focused and accomplish and finish the mission that God has called him to do. And because of that, not only was he able to accomplish and finish the mission that he was given by God, but as a result, he was able to serve his people and serve his church in a way that flourished them. My guess is that each one of us sitting in this room wants to live that kind of a life, a life that's not only faithful to the mission that God has called us to, but as a result of us being faithful to our mission, people around us flourish and know God and fear God as a result. I'm convinced at the heart of each one of us sitting in this room, we want that life. And here's the great news. The great news is that if you are a child of God, that really is the life that God wants for you as well. Your desires match up with God's desires. And so today, what I really want to do is I, I want to share with you maybe, I don't want to say how you can have that life, but maybe how we can move our lives in that direction. I really believe all of us have the capability of being everything that, is, that God has called us to be so that we can accomplish the God-given purposes that God has given to us. We talked about that in Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2. You can revisit those. But in, let me just cut to the quick here, and this is the, this is the point of today's message. In order to become that type of person, and in order for you to be a person that accomplishes the mission of God while flourishing those around you, there is one, um, one characteristic that we all must develop, and that's this. It's a stubbornness 
never to compromise what you believe God wants you to do with your life. Okay, that's it. Stubbornness. You know, Nehemiah exemplified that in this chapter. And what I want to do in today's sermon is I want to go over the story again and explain it just in case we might have really missed it. And then I want to give you two very simple applications. Okay, At the beginning of this chapter, the enemies of the Jews, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, realize that the Jews are almost done rebuilding the walls. And so only the gates are left to be put up, but that's still a lot of work to do. And up until now, we've read in the past few chapters that they've threatened the Jews. You know, they they attack the Jews in so many ways, but up until now, the Jews have thwarted every effort. They have always been successful against every single attack. So now these enemies decide to target the leader. Let's just get Nehemiah. If we can make the leader fall, the rest of them will scatter, right? And so the first thing that they do is they decide, hey, let's call a diplomatic meeting. And so if I can kind of summarize what's being said at the beginning of this chapter, they call this meeting with Nehemiah, they ask him, they invite him to this meeting, and this is what they're basically saying. They're saying, hey, Nehemiah, I know in the past few weeks we've had some disagreements, we've done some bad things to you, you've kind of done things that we don't really like, but look, we see that you're almost done, and because we're going to be neighbors, why don't we just meet to see what we can do to work together to benefit the region around us? Right? Sounds great. Sounds diplomatically wonderful. And it sounds like something that you should probably attend. But Nehemiah Nehemiah sees right through that. And he says in the next verse, he says, I said no because I knew that they were going to harm me. How did he know they were going to harm me? It's very, very simple. They They invited him to come out to this place that was one and a half days journey outside of Jerusalem in the middle of nowhere. And the reason why is because no one would able would be able to hear him or see him get killed, right? That's basically it. And so uh, he rejects them by saying this. He's saying, I am doing a great work. Therefore, I cannot come down. And he literally means I'm doing this work on the wall and I cannot come down from the wall. That's what he says in verse 3. And so these enemies, they invite him four more times, but every single time he refuses. So on the fifth time, they decide to send an open invitation, the verse says. And that's really, really significant. Invitations were always sent in closed invitations, right? They were always closed and they were always sealed. But this one was open. And the reason why is because these enemies wanted everyone to read, every messenger to read exactly what was written in those invitations. And and they, they were hoping that everyone would gossip. And that's exactly what happened. And so therefore, in this open invitation, what was written was a huge lie. They were saying, oh, in this, you know, what's really happening here is that the Jews are plotting against the king of Persia. You know, they're building Jerusalem so that they could become this great nation. They want to overthrow, you know, Persia. And therefore, they, you know, Nehemiah himself wants to replace the king of Persia as the new king. And obviously, it was a huge lie. But they did that so that everyone would be afraid. All the Jews would be afraid. They would stop working. And they would be fearful that the king of Persia would send his armies to destroy them all, so they would stop working on the city. But Nehemiah, once again, sees right through it, and he just says what? He says, no, you know, I refuse, right? I'm not going to capitulate to any of that stuff. So he just says, no, let's continue to work, guys. And so he's fearless, persisting even more. These enemies, all of a sudden then, pay a profit. Look, man, if we can't attack them or get them to do anything diplomatic, why don't we just press those religious buttons, right? If If we send, like, a profit to send him into sin and to destroy his reputation. There's no way the Jews are going to follow him. So that's exactly what they do. They hire this prophet to say, hey, Nehemiah, you're in trouble. They're going to kill you. You need to run into the temple. Let's lock the doors and let's keep ourselves safe. But Nehemiah says no, and he sees right through that too. And the reason why he does is because he knows he's not supposed to be there. We'll explain exactly why a little bit later. But 
Um, he sees right through that, and so he refuses to go in the temple. So uh, every time that these guys try to distract Nehemiah or uh, get Nehemiah off his mission, Nehemiah was resolute. He was stubborn, and therefore he was able to finish the mission that God had given him. Even after the walls were built, we see in the, re- in the bottom of the chapter that they still continue to attack. This guy, Sambalot, he actually married into the Jewish family. He wasn't a Jew himself, but he married into a very prominent Jewish family, and so he then started to use all his connections to try to take Nehemiah down. Right? So even after the walls were built, he was still being attacked. So, you know, Nehemiah and all these Jews, they're bombarded by all these distractions, and they're, they're bombarded by all these attacks. And the thing is, you know, when I think about this chapter, if they had given in to any one of these, uh, the whole story could be totally different, right? Nehemiah might have been killed. Um, the walls may not have been finished. The king of Persia literally could have sent his army to destroy all the Jews, right? Any one of these things uh, could have happened. But what helped them to succeed? And maybe the more appropriate question for 2022 is, what will help you succeed in God's mission for your life, even in the midst of such distractions, intimidations, challenges, opportunities? And so I want to give you two answers to this and two practical applications, hopefully, that you can implement into your life. And the first is this. Make sure that the work you do in your life is great. Okay, that's it. I'll explain what those words mean. But make sure that the work you do in your life is great. Verse 3, I love this verse. Nehemiah replies, I am doing, this is the ESV here, I am doing a great work. Therefore, I cannot come down. And I love that. And what he's basically saying is, hey, I know very clearly the work that God has called me to do, and I am not going to let any distraction or any good opportunity that you might present my way distract me and uh, get me off track to to accomplishing the mission that God has given to me. Nehemiah was tenacious. He was focused. He was resolute, right? To me, this is a verse that you should memorize, all right, I am doing a great work, therefore I cannot come down. I literally say this verse every week, if not every fortnight, so that I can say yes to everything that God wants me to accomplish and no to everything that he doesn't. Right? This is so important to me. Now the thing is, what's really interesting is Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work. So the question is, what was the great work that Nehemiah was doing? He was building a wall. He was making bricks. Right? He was mixing mortar, and he was laying bricks. Is that work great? Maybe. Right? It depends who you talk to. But is that work really great? I mean, wasn't his work greater when he was like the food taster and the counselor to the king of the greatest empire in the known world at the time? Wasn't that work greater? I think most of us might agree that that work could be greater, could be deemed greater. At least that's what the world might think. But what's really interesting here is Nehemiah truly believes that the work that he's doing right then and there is great. And it's greater than anything else that he could be doing at that moment. So the question really is, what makes that work great? What makes a work great? And so here is the answer. What makes a work great is not what you do. Because laying bricks, it's great. But is it great? (laughs) Uh, What makes work great 
is not what you do, but it's how you do it and who, and especially, here we go, who you do it for. If you do, you work the best that you can to your abilities. And if you do it with the heart to make God great and for, the, for his glory, it becomes great. Any work that you do becomes great. Right? Did you ever notice in scripture that for the most part, whenever we talk about calling or this concept of calling, it always has to do with mirroring the character and the values of God and the kingdom more than like a specific occupation. You know, if you read scripture, read your Bible over and over again, whenever you sense this word calling, you know, I think in 2020, we always think vocation, occupation. But in scripture, it's always about mirroring the character and the values of God and the kingdom, you know? And so scripture is filled. That's why scripture is always filled with how we can please God, instructions on how we can please God, how we can live for him, and who we our lives are to be lived for. Why? Because this is our calling, as the children of God, you know, holiness, worship, devotion to God, that is what God values. And that's what makes something great. So the, so maybe a, a natural question would be, well, well, Eddie, how do I know if the work that I am doing right now is great in God's eyes? And I think that's a very fair question. And so let me give you three things that I want you to consider. And, you know, th these three things, you know, if you ask yourself these questions, I think they'll really be helpful. All right? I'll explain what they are, and then I'll summarize it really easily at the end. I think the first thing that we need to think about is this. Nehemiah knew that he had to build walls. That's it, right? There was a clear occupational calling. Now, for many of us, we may not have the luxury of having a clear occupational calling. This is exactly what God wants me to do or become. We, we, we might have that. But truthfully, you don't need it to do a great work for God. Why? Because we have the commands of Scripture. We just talked about it. Our callings really are to mirror the character and the values of God in the kingdom, right? These commands, and if we obey them, they are our calling. And if we are intentionally living out those commands within our lives, and if we are intentionally living our lives each day with making every decision with a desire to glorify him and to honor him, then we are living just as great as Nehemiah. Do you understand that? Your intentions, your heart, right, to honor God. Secondly, Nehemiah also knew that by building these walls, it would protect the people of God, right? So through his obedience, he showed this dedication to serve the people of God with what he was doing. Work that is considered great in God's eyes is usually work that serves other people. Right? Did you ever notice that Jesus Christ says, hey, if you want to be the greatest servant of all, or if you, want to, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, damn, I gave away the answer. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what does he say? He says you have to be a servant of all. Isn't that really interesting? To be great means to serve others in, in Jesus Christ's eyes. So great work usually contributes to serving. It usually looks like serving other people. And so, you know, the question you should ask is, like, when I do this, when I do this work, who am I really serving? Am I serving myself or am I really serving others? I know sometimes it's not that simple, but for the sake of our message today, it's a simple question you can ask. Lastly, lastly Nehemiah's hope for his work. Why does he do this work? Why does he do great work. His hope is revealed to us in verse 16. He writes, so that all the nations of the earth would see and know that God was with them and would in turn fear him. Isn't that interesting? So in the work that you're doing, do you hope that God would be seen through you and that people would come to 
fear him or worship him, do what you're doing or the way that you're doing it, right? Questions that we can ask ourselves. um, A pastor once told me that what makes a work great is a dedication to God's name, to God's promises, and to God's people. That's how I'll sum it up, right? Is the work that you're doing, is it a dedication to God's name, to God's promises, and to God's people, you know? Uh, I think if we're living out those three points, then any work that you do can be great in the eyes of God, right? So it's okay if you're not crystal clear on the actual vocational mission that you might have. Um, If all you do, if all the things that you do in your life is for God's name, God's people, and according to his promises, it is great. With that said, however, I truly believe that if you are a man or woman that truly wants to make God great with your life, there's no reason why God wouldn't lead you and wouldn't direct you as to, as to things where he wants you to go, who he wants you to serve, you know, and I really believe God loves as a parent moving us in those directions so that we can be used to build his kingdom, right? That's the reason why he gives us unique gifts. That's the reason why he gives us unique backgrounds and experiences and histories and, you know, all that kinds of, because he wants us to impact different areas of society. And I really believe, you know, we talked about it once again in Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2. You can revisit those messages. But if you haven't gotten serious about understanding maybe where God is directing you or to what mission God has uh, given you or what God-given purpose, if that's not clear to you, can I ask you just to get super serious about that today? Because I truly believe it is, it will transform your life. You know, my wife and I, we talk about our mission very, very regularly. As a matter of fact, we, we talk about it every week. You know, I always say we talk about it every quarter. But these days, we talk about it every week, every fortnight, almost every day these days, you know. And we always say, hey, who has God called us to serve? How has God called us to serve? And what things can we, like, if we, and then once we clarify that and we state, we make, we make a statement, Karen and I are called to serve the people at FLM. And we'll say something like that. And then what, what we'll do after that is everything that has to do with contributing to that mission and to being faithful to that mission, we say yes to. Everything that doesn't, we say no to. I talked about this in our marriage message. But that is so helpful. It's so clear. So we put our money, we put everything we invest to build and to be faithful, and everything else, no matter how good it is, no matter how tempting it is, no matter how wonderful those things are, we kind of just say no to those things. We actually write out a mission statement, and we say, "My, you know, we exist for this reason. We are called to accomplish God's mission in this way, you know. And I, I would encourage you, if you haven't done that, do it. Just to write a clear statement of what you believe God is calling you to, gives you the power to invest. And it gives you the power to say no to everything else that might be good or just okay, right? You know, when I was a pastor at my previous church, my wife and I felt convicted that this was the church and these were the people that we are called to. So we dedicate everything towards it. But I remember when I first started my ministry there, I was being asked to speak at so many different camps and conferences. And I just said yes to everything because I just thought that's what pastors should do. But after speaking like at all these camps and conferences, it got to the point where I realized it was a distraction. I was literally compromising the work at the church in order to speak at all these other places. And I realized no matter how good it is and no matter how great it can be, like I was being unfaithful to my calling. And so I made this decision to never speak at camps and conferences again while I'm serving maybe the local church I'll I'll try not to unless you guys believe I should or unless you know my officers do or whatever you know because I don't care I just want to be faithful to what God has called me to 
And so that's, if this is it, then I can say no to anything else that's good, because it's just good, but it's not my calling. Do you know what I'm saying? And this is the power of understanding, you know, what God is telling you to do. And that's what gave Nehemiah power, to say no to all these other, quote-unquote, you know, externally look good-looking things. And so that's what I would love for you to do. I literally wrote this reply to one conference. I said, thank you for inviting me to speak at your conference, but I am already doing a great work, and therefore I cannot come, parentheses, down. Right? And they had like, what? This guy has no what is this? I'm sure they were confused by the email, but I was just quoting, you know, scripture. What I'm, the point is, make sure that everything that you do is great. That it's dedicated to God's name, that it's, that it, it's dedicated and operating according to his principles, and that it serves his people. And make sure that you stay on that mission. Make a mission statement, say everything, say yes to everything that contributes, and say no to everything that doesn't, no matter how great it might be. Clarifying and conforming our lives to our mission has literally changed our marriage, it's changed our family, it's changed our ministry. And so I encourage you guys to do it. In order to stay successful, and to stay track on your mission, the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that the work that you do is great. Let's make our work great. The second point has to do with making sure that you continue, that you have the ability to continue that work, to continue to make it great. And that's, so the second point is this, know what pleases God. Okay. In order to continue to do great work with your life, know what pleases God. You know, when the false prophet tells Nehemiah that his life is in danger, that he needs to take refuge in the temple. How did Nehemiah know not to do, not to do that? Well, it's very simple. He knew scripture. He knew that in the Bible it says, hey, only priests are allowed in there. Was Nehemiah a priest? No, he wasn't. So he's not allowed in there. And the priests are only allowed in there just a few days out of the year. Do you know what I'm saying? And so he knew that it was wrong for him to go into that room in the temple. Therefore, he knew that he was being tempted to sin, right? Come to church. No. Right? It was very bold because he knew that. Anyway. All right. So, you know, the, what he knew the scriptures. And because he did, he was not only able to discern God's will, but he knew what pleased God. He knew what was great in his eyes. And so what's going to help us succeed and stay on mission in our life is knowing what pleases God. And the foundation to that is knowing the scriptures, right? You got to know what the Bible says about what God wants you to do and what makes him happy. But the thing is this, you know, just knowing the Bible and knowing all the commands of scripture is not enough because the people who know who knew the Bible best in the Bible were who? The Pharisees. But the problem is the Pharisees knew the Bible inside and out, but they didn't know God. So therefore, you know, uh, knowing scripture has to be combined with an intimate walk with the Lord, okay? Did you ever notice that in every chapter that we've read in Nehemiah so far, all six chapters, every chapter, Nehemiah is always praying, he's always asking God for stuff, and he's always depending upon God for everything. You know, in our passage, he asks for strength, and then he says, God, make sure you remember all these bad dudes who tried to take us down. Remember them. You know, people who pray like that are people who are close to God. I don't know if I can pray like that because I don't think I'm close to God enough to pray like curses upon other people and stuff like that. But that's what he does, right? You got to be close to God to pray like that. But more than anything, we can see that he had such a confidence in God because he was living obediently and in the fear of the Lord. You know, I really believe that a huge challenge for Christians today is that we can read scripture and therefore know 
what is right or wrong, good or bad. But because a lot of Christians today, I'm just generalizing here, this is what I kind of sense is happening in our Sydney Christianity world today, is we study scripture and we kind of know what's right and wrong. We listen to messages so we can hear truth. But because we don't partner that with walking intimately with God, and because we don't see scripture and truth and his commands in light of a person, the person of God, a lot of times our faith bends towards legalism. You know, our Christianity becomes what's right or wrong, good or bad, and we start judging things like that rather than, wow, does this please God? You know what I'm saying? When you walk intimately with God and you talk with him through scripture, you interact with him through truth, you help him, you ask him to help you apply truth within your life, then all of a sudden what you see in your life and in your walk with God is a transformation, a transformation to always talking about what I think is right or wrong or good or bad into like, oh my goodness, this is what God loves and this is what makes him happy or this is what disappoints him. You know, the focus is me and me being right versus God being happy. And I think that's what partnering truth with an intimate walk with God does. And I think that's something that we essentially really truly need to get back to, right? Um, to me, it's obvious that Nehemiah was a guy that walked intimately with God. He knew the scriptures, but he walked so closely with God that he could pray like this. And I really believe that that kind of relationship with God is so necessary if we want to live a life that pleases him. It's one thing to say that this life is great because we can say, okay, it's for God. I did it according to scripture, but also it serves his people. But the ultimate lesson that we learn here is that, wow, but it really takes a heart that's intimately connected with the desire to please him. You know, I want to live that kind of a life because I might fail here, but man, this is the area I really don't want to fail it because if I have this, this stuff will come. But if I can have this, but if I don't have this, I don't know if I really have anything. You know, know what pleases the Lord. Study the scriptures diligently, interact with him in prayer. You do that and you'll continue to live a life that is great. Make your life great. Continue to be great by knowing what pleases him. This chapter, if I'm very frank with you, is one of my life chapters. Verse three, I, it's one of my top, I don't know, can you have a top five verses in the Bible? I, it's one of mine. I say it all the time because it has saved me. It constantly challenges me. It, it helps me focus. It helps me be resolute with what God wants me to do. It challenges me, and it makes me, and it always reminds me, Eddie, do you want to be faithful with what God, you know, has told you to do, or do you just want to just live your own life in the way you want to? And having a mission, having, knowing exactly what God wants me to do, and this being resolute and not doing anything else but what God wants me to do helps me be faithful. And that's all I want to be. And I want to help, and the reason why I preach this is because I want each one of you to live these lives too. All of us were called to not only love God, but to live a life. If we are children of God, we are given purpose, eternal purpose, so that not only can we please him with our lives, but that we can also impact our generation through our obedience, through our devotion, and through our holiness. And that's what you were called for, and that's what you were meant for, and that's what you were saved for. Right? All of you guys have a mission. All of you guys have great work that you must be doing. I'm just going to say it like that. Right? All of you have great work that you must be doing, that you are called to do. So make your life great to God. 
Make your life great to God. And if you can, you know, clarify your mission. Dedicate yourself to it. Say yes to everything that contributes to it. No to everything else, no matter how good it is. And most importantly, walk intimately with God to accomplish it. If we do that, then the hope that Nehemiah had for himself and his church will become our reality. People will see God in your life and will come to know him and fear him through you. Let's pray. All of us are called to live purposefully for God, intentionally, right? So let's do that. Let's make our lives great to God. And let's deepen our walk with him so that he can become even greater through us. Let's pray. Thank you so much for this chapter because I guess if there's anything that really stands out it's that Nehemiah would just look at you and just see how worthy you were he would just be reminded of how awesome and beautiful and worthy you are to live our lives for and so God we just ask more than anything I know everybody wants to live a life that's great in your eyes help us to do that but help us to be people are able to see how worthy you are and how amazing and beautiful you are. And Father, in light of who you are, God, all this stuff is easy. So God, uh, move us to be a church that just wants to please you with all that we have. But in order to do that, we need you to reveal yourself to us so we can do all things for you, so that we can do great work for you and for you. God, we pray that you'll help us do that. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.